0: Hello and welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thanks for joining us for this in depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's free resources, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. Welcome to the second in our series on questions of faith. And um, let's go to the Lord in prayer before we begin. Father God, I do pray that I would not get in the way of what you plan to say today, but that you would lead us into all truth and make the difficult things plain. It is in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen previously we looked at whether or not the idea that there were many paths to god was reasonable and we discovered that the bible clearly states that there is only one way to god and that is jesus christ this wasn't something other people said about jesus it was in fact something that he actually claimed himself when he said in john chapter 14 verse 6 i am the way and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. A question, though, that's often asked along with that first question is, but isn't it enough to be a good person? And it really is a good question, but I guess the first thing we have to define is what do you mean by good? Who gets to determine what good looks like? Because, for example, murder might seem appropriate to one person, but not to another. There has to be some common standard by which we're judged, and the only one who can set that standard really is the one with ultimate authority, God himself. Psychology Today magazine states that generally people see themselves as being relatively good yet imperfect people. And according to them, that really is what makes us human. In other words, if we compare ourselves to others, then even though we know we're not perfect, we are a lot better than some. But is that enough to earn God's acceptance? Is that enough to enable us to be with him in heaven? I mean, if it's a sliding scale, then where's the cutoff? You are not better than your neighbor, but uh, you're better than Hitler, so you're in. Interestingly, the Bible says that those who compare themselves to others are not wise. And Jesus said in Matthew 19 that God is the only one who is truly good. And if it's God's standard that we are compared to, then woe to all of us, because when compared to him, we all fall far short. And that realization helps us to understand our need for a savior, someone who will restore us to God by taking the penalty that we deserve. There was a person in scripture who was pretty sure that they'd kept all of God's commands. Remember the rich young ruler in Matthew 19? He asked what good thing he had to do to get eternal life. And so Jesus asked him if he had obeyed God's commands. Jesus gave him examples of several of the Ten Commandments, covering everything from do not commit murder and do not steal to honor your father and your mother. The young man proudly exclaimed that he had done all of those good things, but then he made the mistake of asking, what do I still lack? To be honest, I think he was expecting commendation from Jesus. Instead, Christ went on to expose this man's shortcoming. You see, he had a problem with greed or covetousness. When Jesus asked him if he was willing to give away everything he'd accumulated, it says in verse 22 of Matthew 19, when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. You see, being rich wasn't really the problem. It was the hold that his riches had on him that was. He claimed to have a level of goodness because he'd done a reasonably good job of keeping the commandments. But even he had fallen short. You see, to God, it's not just a matter of our outward behavior. And so Jesus exposed the true condition of this man's heart. This whole encounter made even the disciples question who would ever be good enough to be saved. And Jesus answered that trusting in your own goodness is really a highway to nowhere. But what is impossible for man to accomplish is possible for God to bring about. So are we ever able to be good enough to work our way to God? I'm sure you can guess the answer to that. If Jesus said he is the only way to the Father, then good works alone will not be the way to get us there. But let's look in the word. Back in Genesis, we learn it was man's disobedient to God's original command in the Garden of Eden that caused this rift which affects not only our relationship with God, but with one another as well. Though Adam and Eve tried to make coverings for themselves once they had sinned, God had to intervene. That day, for the first time, death entered the garden. An innocent animal died on behalf of the guilty so that their shame could be covered. For many of us, it seems horrible that a poor, innocent animal died on behalf of the guilty. And yet I think that that just goes to underscore the ugliness and the seriousness of sin. Hebrews 9 verse 22 says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And so God, in his mercy, provided for a way for mankind's shame to be covered but it required the death of the innocent on the behalf of the guilty. Now, I'm pretty sure we all know the story about Adam and Eve's sons, Cain and Abel, and how they both made offerings to the Lord. Abel's was accepted, but Cain's was rejected. But why? What was the difference between what these two boys offered? Well, look with me at Genesis chapter 4, verses 2 to 6. It says, Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, but Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Can you see here in what they brought to God that Cain brought the fruit of his own labor as an offering, but it did not earn him God's favor? Abel, however, in offering some of his best animals, showed his faith in God. I mean, think about it. Any farmer will tell you, You never kill off the best of your gene pool. Yet Abel showed faith in God by offering his best, some of the firstborn of his flock. Not only that, but remember what God's word says. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. The animal died as a substitute on Abel's behalf. The blood of the innocent was offered on behalf of the guilty, And God accepted Abel's sacrifice because of the blood shed on his behalf. I want us to notice, though, that the Lord's reaction to Cain in verse 6 and 7 does still give him a second chance. It says, Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. You see, God implies by his words that Cain had known all along what was required in order to be accepted, saying, Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? In essence, he's giving Cain a second chance to do the right thing. The work of Cain's own hands would never be enough to bring him into fellowship with the Lord. Fig leaves hadn't worked for his dad, Adam, and figs weren't going to work for Cain. For if fellowship with God is to ever be restored, sin's debt needs to be paid by a blood sacrifice. But Cain was too proud to go to his brother for an animal. He was unwilling to trust God with the outcome of that. Cain wanted to come to God his own way. He wanted to get right with God on his own terms, with what he had done. And effectively, God says to him, You can't do what seems right in your own eyes. Like it or not, only those whose debt has been paid my way can have fellowship with me. Unfortunately, we all know Cain's reaction Instead of repenting, letting go of his pride and making it right by asking his brother for an animal, it's as if he said to God, okay, if you want blood, you can have it, and he killed his brother. As a result, Cain was further banished from fellowship with God. A friendship with God has always been based on faith, a belief in God that is proved by our obedience to his word. Throughout the Old Testament, we see people approached God the same way that Abel did, by the blood of animals. Of course, the sacrificial system all pointed to what Christ would one day come to do, dying in our place, his blood for our blood. And now, with the sacrificial law fulfilled in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, no further blood sacrifice is needed. And that's why animal sacrifices are no longer offered. So how do we approach God now then? It is still by faith in what he has provided, rather than by trusting in our own work. In John chapter 6, Jesus revealed himself to be the bread of life, the very thing that sustains life. And he told people in verse 27, do not work for the food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, What must we do to do the works that God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Notice how when Jesus responds to them, he changes their works, plural, to work, singular. There is only one vital thing, and that is belief in Christ. And this is far more than just an intellectual belief. It's more than being persuaded of the truth that Jesus existed. It is that we are willing to base our whole life on what we've believed. To truly believe in Christ means that we entrust everything we are and everything we have to Jesus. Of course, as a follower of Christ, as someone who has entrusted themselves to him, we will do good works, but we don't do them to win God's favor we already have God's favor. Rather, we do good things that God has prepared in advance for us to do out of gratitude. As I like to say, we don't work to become sons of God. Rather, we work because we are sons of God. If we are concerned about being good, moral people, we need to deal with who Christ is and what he means to us. It was no different for the disciples in Jesus' day either. At one point, as large crowds began to follow Jesus, he took his disciples to a place called Caesarea Philippi. This was rather a strange place for Christ to come with his closest followers because this particular area had long been associated with pagan worship. There was a large cave there where people believed there was an entrance to hell itself. It's possible that there were no fewer than 14 pagan temples in this area There was also a glistening white marble temple for the worship of Caesar there as well. A person couldn't think of Caesarea Philippi without thinking of how many different gods there were to choose from. And yet it was here that Jesus asked his disciples a critical question, a question that would in fact mark the turning point of his whole ministry. Everything prior to that day, was in preparation for the question he asked them there. And everything after that day was in preparation for the cross. So what was the question? Well, according to Matthew 16, verse 13, Jesus began by asking them, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Now, there are several things that are worth pointing out in that. Firstly, Jesus, as he often did, referred to himself as the Son of Man, which was a title for the Messiah or the Anointed One of God that came from the Old Testament writings of the prophet Daniel. So, though he declares himself to be the Messiah, he first asks them who other people say that he is. The disciples answered him by saying, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. You see, everyone knew that there was something very different about Jesus, and some of the crowds, including Herod Antipas of Galilee, wondered if Jesus wasn't perhaps John the Baptist returned from the dead, as John the Baptist had by this time already been put to death. Some guessed at Elijah, one of the greatest prophets of God from the Old Testament. Elijah had not tasted death but had been caught up to heaven on the chariots of fire and they wondered if perhaps he had returned to earth. Others thought Jesus may actually be the prophet Jeremiah and I think the reason for that was because it was believed by many that both Elijah and Jeremiah would return to earth as a precursor to the coming of the Messiah. Whatever the case, in saying what they did, it is clear that the people were trying to give the highest human honour possible to Jesus. After all, other than John the Baptist, there had been no prophet of God for a very long time. Between the Old Testament and the New, there had been 400 silent years. So by saying a prophet of God had returned, they were really paying Christ the ultimate compliment they could, as they were sure that they heard God's voice through him. It was as if they were saying he was really the greatest of men, but their view of Christ was limited and fell far short of the truth. So Jesus then went on to ask his disciples the pivotal question. But who do you say that I am? And we're told that Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. As I often point out, the word Messiah is Hebrew, and in essence it means the Anointed One. When that title is translated in Greek, it is the word Christos, or Christ in English. Kings were ordained to office by anointing, And the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, is God's king over mankind. But I want you to notice what Peter says of him. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Do you notice how Peter says Jesus is the Christ? God has only one anointed one. Jesus is not one of many. Not only that, he is in fact the son of the living God. And in saying that, Peter blew all of the other descriptions of Jesus out of the water. There's clearly no one like Christ, for he is God incarnate. In other words, God in the flesh. Now, I want you to notice what Jesus says to him in response. We're told that Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my father in heaven. This is incredibly important. You see, if Jesus was merely a rabbi, a good teacher, there is no way that he would have allowed Peter to say something like that. If it were untrue, he would have corrected him. Instead, he says that this truth was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. Jesus not only accepts Peter's assessment of him, he actually confirms it by speaking of his Father in heaven. He goes on to say, And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. It is on this confession of faith that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that the church will be built. That truth will initially be preached through Peter, and so, in that sense, he will also be foundational to the beginning of Christ's church. And we saw that when we looked at Acts chapter 4 verse 12 when Peter said that salvation is found in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Peter was teaching exactly what Jesus himself had taught in John 14 verse 6 when he declared I am the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father except through me. Up at that grotto in Caesarea Philippi, there were many, many false gods to worship, but Jesus is not one of many. He is not one of a variety of ways to God. All false worship is useless and it shall not prevail against the spread of the gospel. There is significance for us today in what Jesus asked here because if the only true work that God requires is that we believe in the one he has sent, then we cannot just go on what others have said about Jesus. Our knowledge of Christ has to be personal. Christianity is about a personal decision and in effect, Christ asks each of us Yes, I know what others think of me, but who do you say that I am? He claimed to be the Messiah, God incarnate, and you have to make your mind up as to whether or not you personally believe him to be the only way for you to be saved. You know, C.S. Lewis was an atheist who converted to Christianity, and he put it this way in his book, Mere Christianity where he said, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus, that I am ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So yes, by all means, do good works. Yes, be a moral, upstanding person. Be virtuous. Choose the right thing over the wrong. Love God with all your heart and all your might and love your neighbor as yourself. Give generously, help the poor and the weak, care for the widows and those in need. Labor for the Lord with all your strength in the place that he has you. Let your light shine before men that they might glorify your Father in heaven. But with all of that, realize that all you do does not make you good enough, nor does it earn you a place in heaven. Only faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and in his blood can do that. Only God can change your heart and make you the person he has always designed you to be. For it is only with God that all things are possible. May God bless you. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. Michelle's messages are also available on all major podcast platforms and on her website at intheword.com.